Booster is excited to support DIA Schools Collaborative on furthering the missions of our respective organizations through Follow to Lead podcast and other DIA programming. Visit ChooseBooster.com for details on Booster's school fundraising events, technology, and customized spirit gear. Booster can help your Catholic school meet and exceed its fundraising goals. Learn more today. Welcome to Follow to Lead, where we discover how to listen for and follow God's call so that we might lead others to God. Our shared stories of inspiration from religious leaders and those active in the educational ministry of the church can help you know better how God is calling you and the role passionate Catholic education plays in spreading His message of faith, hope, and love. Now please welcome the hosts of Follow to Lead, Father Randy Sly and Kyle Pietrantonio. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Christ the teacher, teach us to listen. Teach us to do the deep listening to the sounds of our soul, waiting to hear your voice, calling us to cast out deeper, to become fishers of men and women, shepherds of souls, to follow your will in order to lead others to the truth, beauty, and goodness only you can offer. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Welcome to Follow to Lead, a journey twice a month into the world of Catholic education, exploring what it means to follow God in order to lead others to Him. I'm Kyle Petrantonio, the Executive Director of uh, DIA Schools and your co-host to Follow to Lead. And I'm Father Randy Sly, and today we're going to be talking with the Most Reverend Michael Miller, Archbishop of the Archdiocese of Vancouver in British Columbia. And Archbishop Miller has been the chief shepherd of Vancouver's 430,000 Catholics since January of 2009, after Pope Benedict uh, XVI had named him coadjutor bishop, or archbishop rather, two years earlier. He was born and raised in Ottawa, and Archbishop Miller uh, began his university studies before entering the novitiate of the Basilian Fathers, making his first profession to vows in 1966. His original field of academic interest was Latin American studies, and he earned a bachelor's degree from the University of Toronto in 1969 and a master's from the University of Wisconsin in 1970. Uh, he then taught high school for a year, pursued a master of divinity at the University of St. Michael's College in Toronto, and completed his licentiate and doctorate in theology at the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome and in 1975. Pope St. Uh, Paul VI ordained him a priest. And Archbishop Miller joined the theological faculty at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas in 1979, served as the chair of theology uh, there, as well as dean of the school at St. Mary's Seminary. And, and then in 1990, was named St. Thomas's vice president for academic affairs, and in 1997, became the university's president. From 1992 to 1997, he worked in Rome at the Vatican's Secretariat of State. And Pope St. John Paul II appointed him to the Episcopacy in 2003 and named him the Secretary of the Vatican's Congregation for Catholic Education. And in, in addition to teaching theology in seminaries uh, in the U.S., Mexico, Rome, uh, Archbishop Miller has served on the boards of schools, universities, healthcare institutions, and numerous other organizations. And uh, so we are very pleased, Archbishop Miller, to welcome you uh, to Follow to Lead. Thank you. Thank you very much, Father. Archbishop. <laughs> Reviewing um, my life. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's great to have you, Archbishop. And today's uh, program uh, is a very special one as it's the first installment in a six-part series uh, on a presentation that you uh, authored while serving as secretary of the Congregation for Catholic Education entitled The Holy See's Teaching on Catholic Schools. That presentation was later expanded and published in a small book. And in the following programs of our uh, podcast, we'll be focusing on the five essential marks uh, outlined in uh, the presentation. Uh, as we do with all of our guests on uh, Follow to Lead, Archbishop, we'd like just to hear a little bit about your own upbringing um, and background and kind of discernment into uh, priesthood, if you would be so kind. Sure. Uh, as Father mentioned, I, 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 I was born in Ottawa. I'm a product of Catholic elementary school, St. George's, that had sisters. I had three sisters, I think, in, in, in my eighth grade. Then I went to a high school. It was a boys' high school. So it was co-institutional. We were pretty separate from the women. They had the uh, uh, sisters of the Holy Cross. We had the Brazilian fathers. Uh, and I was there for, in, in Ontario, it was for five years. And it was during that period that I certainly began to think about becoming a, a, a priest and specifically a Brazilian, because I always wanted to teach. That was, uh, there was a, a poster in the corridor that had, uh, you know, a picture of a, a, you know, a young priest said, long hours, hard work, no pay. And that, <laughs> you know, to a 15 year old kid in the 19, early 1960s, that was an appealing kind of call. I then went to uh, the University of St. Uh, no, to University of St. Michael's College you know, on the campus of the University of Toronto, uh, was in the dorm there. Uh, those were the days when we would, the boys would go down and have night prayer. You know, we'd be in our pajamas and, and so on and go and kneel, kneel in, the, in, in, in the common room and so on. Uh, things that you could do in an all-boys dorm. Uh, and then after that year, I joined the division of the, of, of, of the Bazillions. And then uh, it wasn't, uh, when I joined the division, there were 42 of us. Um, so nowadays, you know, we there's five, six, seven. Right. And, and it wasn't such an unusual. Guys often ask, you know, there was no, it, it was a more, I hate to say normal, but it was kind of normal for a Catholic kid, you know, had, who had some a little devotional life to think about becoming a priest. And it wasn't looked upon as something extraordinary at all. We We would have. From, from the Brazilian high schools, we would have, I remember my year, there were eight, I think, from uh, Aquinas in Rochester and, and, you know, five from Catholic Central. It was, it, it wasn't the major step that when I listened to the young, young guys after they tell their stories, they often have great conversions, uh, you know, they were doing this and that. In the 60s, we were, we were Catholic boys who felt the call Half of them, at least, left within a year, but it was, it 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 wasn't as um, dramatic as it seems to be today. Um, now, Archbishop, and, uh, our audience may not be familiar with uh, the Bazillion Fathers. Can you tell us a little bit about yeah, the congregation of Saint we, Basil? We, we, yeah, we we were founded exactly two hundred years ago mm -hmm. in France. It was a group of priests who, during the revolution, had been teaching young men in the in the minor seminary. When the revolution was concluded, they they thought they were sort of in secret. They thought that they would kind of continue their work, live together. They were basically diocesans living a community life. 
and sort of gradually resolved. Uh, it became a religious community. In the 1850s, when there were only about hmm, under 20 of them, one of their former students and ended up being appointed the uh, uh, Archbishop of Toronto. And so he invited some of the Brazilians to start. And so in, we founded St. Michael's College uh, uh, on the campus of the university, a big prep school, eventually the Pontifical Institute of Medieval Studies, and then mm -hmm. sort of around the Great Lakes, went to Rochester, uh, Detroit, other places in Ontario, and then sort of spread. We were teachers, high school mm -hmm. and college teachers was our main. You know, later on, sort of, we got into mission work and parishes, but the the originating charism was teaching, and we all taught between finishing college and be, before going to uh, on to study theology. That was, you know, we're not a we're not a very big community now. We have more vocations in Latin America, where we started to go in the 1960s, and then mm -hmm. it's really only in the last 20 years where there's been growth there. So we have. You know, Most of our audience, Archbishop, is from North America. Most of your educational work was here as well. Yes. What was it like to see Catholic education from a global perspective when you served as Secretary of the Congregation for Catholic Education? That's interesting. Of course, I brought the Canadian and more recently American experience, and it became very clear to me that Catholic schools in many countries are not nearly as well developed, nor do they, they're often uh, completely state sponsored or many more of them are run by religious, for example, in Italy, as opposed to dioceses. Uh, religious education, which is what they associate with Catholic schools, is often given a place in a public school system so that your Catholic teachers are basically religion teachers who have access to, to uh, public schools. The idea of a parish school, which is closely linked to a pastor and a, a group of parents, whatever you call the, the group, whether it's a board or uh, a committee, uh, that is more an Anglosphere model. It's mm -hmm. found also to a certain extent in, in, in Australia and so on. And so that our, our understanding of a Catholic school sort of being beside a parish where the kids can go to mass, you know, on first Fridays or once a week, that kind of thing. That's not a universal phenomenon of Catholic schools. In, in many European cities, they were run by religious and not really linked to a parish very much at, at, at all. Uh, also sort of notions that we would bring, although we're all involved in in-person teaching and so on. The notion of homeschooling, which is fairly developed in Europe, I, I mean, it was almost seen as not abhorrent quite, but it was not at all a concept that they were familiar with. And our right. emphasis on the rights of parents, it, there's something peculiar about the North American experience, which is not universal. Yeah, that's I think it's a good but it's not universal. Now, one of the things we wanted to do today, Archbishop, is really kind of focus on the whole of that document. We're going to take each sure. uh, of the next episodes and talk about each of the five marks. But uh, sure. your your presentation, the Holy See's teaching on Catholic schools, what was the occasion? What was the impetus for putting together that document? 
um, it, it really started when I had to give a talk to the what they call the sponsoring groups in Ireland, the trustees, uh, that questions were coming up about the Catholicity of their schools and the relationship of Catholic schools to the government. To be honest, I forget the exact detail. But it was then when, when I first uh, kind of came up with, you know, a way to organize what a, what a, you know, how we do we identify a true or authentic Catholic school and started to talk about Marx. And I just thought of the because it's a, a mnemonic device uh, for, for people. But that was that was in 2004. And then it was the lecture that I'd been invited to give at Catholic U that prompted the kind of a fuller elaboration. And over time, I've tooled around with it, you know, changed titles and things. But I've, I think it's organized my own thinking. And, and uh, of course, it's used here in the Archdiocese of Vancouver in our schools. <laughs> the first part, you know. Archbishop, uh, focuses on the role of parents as yes. the first teachers of our children. It would seem that this area has become even more critical in today's Indeed. culture. Can you comment a bit about, you know, why you wanted to focus on on that as a specific mark and, and some of your kind of thoughts on that topic now? Yeah, I think it is. I think we have to uh, really emphasize the parental, the responsibility for the education of the children belongs in the first place to parents and that others, um, it can't really be outsourced. It can there be help, there's there's assistance, but it really, it, it really, it, it depends upon the parents and, and the role of the family. It certainly in, and this is different, at least in in the experience here in British Columbia and, I, and other provinces of Canada as well, where the, the state simply fills the void and kind mm -hmm. of assumes that it has the right to teach the children as they best see fit. And sometimes parents are seen as being unwelcome, uh, sort of busybodies in the, in, in the education of children. And I know in the States, there are certain, there, there are certainly also strong movements to reassert, to assert and sometimes reassert the irreplaceable role of parents. We talk about the, here in Vancouver, we talk about the, the three-legged stool. It's, 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 it's the parish, the school, and the family that uh, together uh, bring forward and offer an education to, to, to young people. Mm -hmm. uh, one big problem is um, we have a large, hardworking immigrant population, and people, families are often, there are often two jobs or even three in the parents and they're very keen on Catholic education, but they don't have time to kind of invest in what that means by taking part in the life of the school appropriately and so on. And so we try to, we try to emphasize that and indeed ask parents to be, uh, to offer non-financial support uh, for the school uh, as well as it, as a way of showing their concrete investment in their child's education. I, I worry about, you know, state control. 
Yeah. Well, in in the document, you talked a lot about the need for plurality of school systems. And I think in today's culture, we see such a polarization that uh, this is even more, I think, of a mandate for healthy families. And uh, you talk about the fact that a family should have a say in uh, with whom they are going to entrust their children's education, which I think is, you know, a, a really key concept. Now, while the United States is behind uh, many other countries, including Canada, in providing some financial assistance, many states are now able to provide funding through some unique channels. And so I have two questions. The first is, how support okay. doing in Canada? And uh, okay. do you see the second one is, do you see state support uh, as a growing and positive trend for the U.S.? Okay, I can tell you, in Canada... Um, Education is provincial, provincial mandate. So there are different systems in two large, in some provinces. Now there's no Catholic education. Quebec, which used to have a huge system of Catholic education run almost entirely by religious, now has almost no Catholic schools. Wow. Certainly nothing supported by the province. And there may be three or four that are private in in a province of nearly 9 million people. Ontario... Ontario, which has 17 million people, has a huge publicly, fully supported public school system. It wasn't fully supported until 30 years ago. It was partially, and they fought for it. Um, And it brings with it, I'll get to that, brings with it certain questions. Alberta has the same kind of system, um, you know, oil producing Alberta. Uh, In British Columbia, we have a, uh, um, in Ontario, they're just the Catholic schools that get this full support. No other school. In British Columbia, all independent schools, and about 40% of those are Catholic. The others are mostly Christian, some Jewish, some Muslim, some Sikh, and some non-denominational, some uh, secular. We get half of the operating costs of the public school in our district. So if the government is financing a public school kid, say, I think it's around mostly around 8,500 or 9,000, we'll get 4,500. We get no support for capital. So we, all our schools are owned by, uh, depends ultimately by the diocese, but, but you know, they're parochial, they're, they're parochial schools. Uh, the hazards, we do not want, when I came to British Columbia, I knew the the, Canadian, the Ontario model, and I kind of was suggesting this is something that we should really advocate for, full funding. It was soon made clear to me that people were willing to keep, uh, to pay more to keep their independence, because when there was full funding from the government, the ability to hire the ability to control curriculum and so on within broader mandates was lost. Mm. And so in, in Ontario, now there are public boards in which P, all you have to do to get elected to it, and it's an election to show a baptismal certificate. Uh, teachers, the, the schools are forced to hire who's available and so on. So they lose a lot mm-hmm. of independence and ability. If, if, if state taking state money brings with it those kinds of um, demands, 
then I'd say resist it. But if it's things like supplying books, giving buses and all of that, and, and, and they won't meddle, then it's, it, it's, it's actually just. But the tendency when they give money in Canada, you know, if you're call, if you're you're gonna, they want to extract their ideals. Archbishop, have you seen other ways um, in your work for those with limited economic resources to make Catholic education available? That's that's really tough. I mean, we our high schools they're able to put aside enough money to have bursary programs that are administered by third parties. We've gone to third party administration of financial aid because it used to be um, pastors and so on. And they, they just didn't want to want to get into that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, our tuition can be kept. Well, for example, most elementary schools now are about um, 3,500 maybe a year, the high schools are about seven. In fact, if we want to get the 50% support, we can't spend more per student. So on a couple of the, of the more, um, how would I say, elite schools, so to speak, they watch that they don't spend too much on that so that they can keep getting the 50% operational, operational funding. It's really, it's really tough. Um, particularly if there are schools that are under-enrolled in parts of town mm -hmm. that are not flourishing as, as are often suburban school, areas of suburban schools. Um, you know, I know that in, in some places, this is not our case, there, there's, a, there's pooled funding uh, that's made available through the diocese that is, is able to redistribute. We have such a strong parochial culture that asking parishes to do that a parish might do it to a neighboring school because it decides that it's a good thing but sort of centralizing the thing is that would not be a popular movement mm -hmm. here it's it's tough though the the because if if we had to pay the full load it would be double and that would that would cause we have this deal with the government. We also are very aware, as are the other independent schools, we have a, a, a we have hired lobbyists uh, to ensure that this that we keep this deal. We also mm -hmm. want like we, we we do get full funding for children of special needs. Okay. You know, so that they can get an educational assistant to be with them and so on. So we bargain for that. Um, there are different things we try to bargain for, but nobody wants to go over the 50% because they know that that will bring them the government right to our doorstep. Yep. It's been interesting here in Missouri where I live that we've just recently had uh, a new uh, statewide amendment that allows uh, individuals to earmark a portion of their tax money for education, wow. uh, different kinds of education, without it impacting the public school or without any state inf uh, involvement uh, in the management of wow. the school. It's just money earmarked. And uh, I know this last year we've been able to distribute two and a half million, no, yeah, two and a half million dollars in aid to needy families. Well, that's and I'm, I'm hoping this is a growing trend. 
That could be. That's a wonderful and and the money just is the two and a half million is made available to the to the diocese or the archdiocese. That yeah, how that's does, the amount of money that this. Yeah, there's an agency uh, in the diocese that is uh, right. approved by the state to uh, distribute the money, and uh, we're one of I think three or four different organizations across Missouri that's been given approval. I think next year we're going to be approved for maybe 5 million, but we actually oh, have, we actually have schools that may be opening up. Oh, that's really good. Is it in, <laughs> yeah. anywhere else? Is it, is it in Georgia yet? It is Archbishop uh -huh. Miller. Yes. Um, <clears throat> there is a tax credit scholarship program that began uh, maybe a decade ago. Uh, and that has really flourished. And <clears throat> there are these nonprofits that uh, have formed that uh, function as scholarship organizations. And so uh, as a married couple filing jointly, my wife and I can right. redirect $2,500 of our state tax liability that goes into that. Corporations and, and um, uh, other um, uh, companies can have a much higher threshold. And so uh, there's a $100 million cap in the state of Georgia that's distributed across private schools uh, every year. And so it's, it's been a wonderful boon, uh, for, uh, private education and can, Catholic can, education. Can you designate whether you want, you want your money for Catholic schools or does it go? You can, yes, you can designate the specific school that you want your tax credit, um, uh, dollars to go toward. Yep. Okay. That's wonderful. So that I bet there are campaigns in parishes then to encourage people to. Oh yes. Oh yes. Yes. Uh -huh. uh, Absolutely. We had a whole campaign plan uh, for uh, nearby parishes that didn't have uh, schools. Oh, most yeah. definitely. It's a yeah. race to the top to get uh, right. as much of that hundred million as you can. Yes. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, Archbishop, I'd like to sh um, shift our conversation to okay. the, sure. the actual presentation and the majority of the document are the five essential marks of Catholic schools inspired by right. a supernatural vision founded on a Christian anthropology animated by communion and community imbued with a Catholic worldview and sustained by the witness of teaching. And as I said, we're going to address each of those individually, right? But um, are these five marks unique to your presentation or have you, they been documented earlier? What, where did they, where did I they come from? Oh, I think they came from, from multiple sources. A lot of them were from documents already produced by the Congregation for Catholic for Catholic Education. I think it was just really, in some ways, compiling a lot of material and and putting them into um, an, a mnemonic form that that would be sort of more easily retained. Over the years, I've kind of sometimes uh, shifted things or, or 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 combined things, changed a little bit the. Uh, the order, often now putting uh, communion and so on more towards the end, giving mm -hmm. a little more emphasis to the Catholic worldview uh, and collapsing sometimes supernatural uh, vision with, you know, more under Christ the teacher and an anthropology and, and so on. Um, but um, I, I think one of the, I really like the, the one that I, I'd like a lot to stress is the, um, Catholic worldview, that mm -hmm. the schools are, in a sense, Catholic across the curriculum, that the notion that a Catholic school is Catholic because it, you know, it's, it has a certain religious name, there's mass, there's mass on, on occasion availability, and the teaching of catechism or religious education, that, 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 that doesn't really cut it. 
it has to be. It's the formation of um, a learned and virtuous child across the curriculum. It doesn't mean invoking, you know, pieties um, when you're teaching math or arithmetic or history, but it sure does mean that the teachers have to be themselves well-formed in the, in the Christian tradition. And we've found in Vancouver that we have, we can certainly, we can insist by contract that they be practicing Catholics. And um, they nearly all are. There's the odd music teacher or gym teacher that isn't. But what we did find is that they were not often very well formed as adult Catholics. Mm -hmm. They were pious. They all went, they went, you know, went to mass and so on. But the uh, an understanding of really what it means for Catholic education was sometimes they needed a lot of formation. So we're working on that. But that's 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 important, you know. New, that new teachers coming into the system—they're often formed in, in secular universities here, where the faculties of education are—they used to be indifferent to the religion. Now mm -hmm. they're often anti-religious, mm -hmm. and the uh, young people have to be able to be exposed to the richness of the Catholic intellectual tradition so that they can take it on, even in, when they're teaching third grade of the five marks is there one or two that you see particularly in need of work uh today you know 17 years now after you put together well, this document? I, think, I think one of one of them is the, the, the notion of um communion which touches the, the whole question of hiring and the most mm. recent document from the congregation last February on the identity of Catholic school for the first time actually talks about the importance in, of hiring Catholics and actually dismissing people mm -hmm. who, who are not um, on board with the Catholic mission of the institution. They never dared say that before mm -hmm. um, because of all you know the, the states in which this, this is true. I think that certainly needs um, increasing attention. Um, also, I think um, the notion of that we teach a sound understanding of the human person, mm. the Christian anthro anthro anthropology deal, um, you know, it has variants in theology of the body and, and so on. And we all know you're probably facing these uh, huge gender issues, which 10 years ago, I didn't know what gender dysphoria was. Mm -hmm. You know, all of these things now, uh, they're, they're hitting our schools. It, it really is a battleground, isn't it? It, it is a battleground. And parents, uh, theoretically, they'll, be, they'll say things, but if it's their kid, it, there's a, it, it, it can become tense, you know, for, for, for these issues. And uh, we had a case, now it's probably seven years, the first case that went to a human rights tribunal because we didn't have any we didn't have any understanding or accommodation so to speak now there are committees and so on that you know uh, that meet to try to deal with a young person uh, who had who's actually suffering from gender dysphoria mm -hmm. what what you can do what you can't do all of these things but mm -hmm. they were not in place you look at any handbook from 
2010. Nothing on that. Yeah. You know, now our teachers, they want in-service. What can they say? What can they do? How mm-hmm. do they talk to the parent? What do they tell other kids in the school? All of these things that are they're just new and baffling. Archbishop Miller, as we begin to wrap up our time together, toward the end of the presentation, you stated that ensuring a genuinely Catholic identity is the church's greatest challenge for our schools. Our audience uh, on Follow to Lead is primarily Catholic school uh, leaders, administrators, and teachers. From your perspective, uh, both as the former secretary of the Congregation for Catholic Education and now as Archbishop, what message would you like to lead uh, with our Catholic educators on this? I, I guess it would be um, to encourage them to keep, I mean, I think it's wonderful that there is a collaborative, that there are instruments to which people, uh, the men and women involved in the schools can come together. They can talk about things. They can be aware that this is something that their school mission um, is important and that there be accountability for it, that we don't just say the right things on our on our on our website but we actually have means to show that we can uh, that we're delivering on that we do that you know in in so many other areas when there are school evaluations etc etc there certainly should be a wide component or a rich component of accountability for the catholic identity slash mission of a school Um, it's ultimate ultimately the if the school is to reduce children who go to heaven to put it in very simple category uh, um, but real terms that we can't judge but lots of things we can judge along the way that have ins- external markers that should be um, attended to by those who have kind of special responsibility and it can be exciting to come up with with, with that i think Archbishop Miller, I mean, we're seeing some movement with bishops and archbishops um, to the point about accountability on on Catholic culture, Catholic identity, say, listen, this can't go on. um, And we're going to strip your designation as a Catholic institution or you can no longer celebrate mass. Do you think that there needs to be some more fraternal accountability um, along those lines where bishops and archbishops are saying, actually, this is doing more harm to our ministry as a Catholic church? I, yeah, I, I, you know, it's very hard for, as you know, bishops, each, each bishop kind of is directly yep. subject to, right. uh, to mm-hmm. Rome. Um, it's probably at the USCCB uh, where such conversations could take place. I think the new document the document produced in February from, from the congregation, just before it was changed to a dicastery, uh, has some very, it has a lot on the responsibility of bishops uh, to oversee the Catholic identity of schools within their jurisdiction. You know, some robust discussion, if it, if it could be possible among, among men, either at the regional level in, in the states or the national level, I think would... Um, build them up and give them a little protection to know that they, you know, if they want to do something that they're not, they're not going to be uh, ratted out by, by colleagues. Sure. Mm -hmm. Well, Archbishop Miller, thank you so much for being with us today. This is really a wonderful beginning for our diving into your document and uh, to find out more about how we can truly enliven those, uh, those five marks.
I, I, I think alive. that, yeah, <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, your final comments, especially really bring to light the need to make our schools authentically Catholic yeah. and uh, that the Catholic identity is really supreme in, in what we have to do. Exactly. Otherwise, why have a Catholic school? If it's just a public school with catechism, cheaper to have catechism in the parish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I know at the school where I was president, we, uh, we used to say uh, that our job is to get your kids to heaven, but we just want them to go to school, uh, high school and college first. First. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, okay. well, again, thank you so much for being our guest on thank Follow you. to Lead. Right. And God bless. For our audience, if you would like a copy of the Archbishop's presentation, you can download it on the podcast section of our Duke and Altum website at diaschools.org. And if you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast and be sure to leave a comment to encourage us on future programs. To learn more about the Duke and Altum Schools Collaborative, again, you can visit our website at diaschools.org. We want to thank our production assistant, Alex Shire, for assisting with this podcast. May Almighty God bless you. We'd like to thank you for joining us on this episode of Follow to Lead, a production of the Duke and Altum Schools Collaborative. To learn more about finding your own path in your journey of faith, or for more information on what we discussed in today's episode, you are invited to follow us on social media and visit us on the web at diaschools.org. To provide a one-time donation or monthly pledge, please visit our website. Your gift will aid us in providing up-to-date information, additional resources, and other support on how to take Catholic education to a higher level. We look forward to helping you follow God's call to lead others to God right here on Follow to Lead.